This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Please take a moment to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And, and they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are looking at the kingdom of God and the gospel of Luke. And uh, this evening, we come to one part of the kingdom of God that um, people don't really like very much. Uh, we don't want it really to be there, but it is there. It's always there. And uh, that is that in the kingdom of God, uh, there are going to be storms. So when you, uh, when you enter the kingdom of God and, and become a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, uh, that does not mean you're going to be escaping all the storms. It's it's still going to be a place of storms. It's a different way of interacting with storms, but you are going to encounter storms. And this passage is expressly written to the church by Luke to say that you will encounter storms as faithful disciples. So far in the gospel, it's been pretty smooth sailing for the disciples. They have encountered some pushback. There's been a little bit of grumbling from the Pharisees, and they have experienced some embarrassment that they've been hanging around with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. So there's been a little bit of trouble, but for the most part, there have been huge crowds. Jesus has been performing miracles of healing. He raised someone from the dead. They see their careers taking off. They can imagine that uh, at some point in the near future, Jesus is going to overthrow Rome, and they're going to be sitting at his right hand and his left hand in power. And they have no idea uh, what is coming. What is about to come very shortly. When he gets in that boat and they sail east across the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee, uh, they have no idea what's about to come. But what Luke is saying is that uh, somewhere in your journey with Christ, there are going to be uh, terrible storms where you feel like you're perishing. Uh, Master, Master, we are perishing, verse 24. Where the the very thing that seems most stable in your life is going to be completely shaken. 
and uh, you won't know what to do. You'll be completely confused and overwhelmed and swamped. That's the first thing we want to look at is the storms. But then the second thing, and this is unique to someone who does follow Christ, the second thing that this passage shows us is that Jesus is in that boat, and he doesn't get out of that boat. He stays with us in the storm, and that in the storm we can survive because of the presence of God uh, with us in that storm, with all of his power, uh, all of his love. He is not going to get out of the boat. He's going to stay in the boat with us. So those two things, first the storm and then the fact that God is with us in our storms. And the storms begin on this very famous lake that is uh, 700 feet below sea level. So it's an unusual lake. It's not real big, but it's uh, it's very unusual in its formation. So there are these mountains around the, the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, they're like this, and they... They, it's like a bowl. And not only that, so that creates a lot of wind, uh, but also in between these things, there are these gaps. In, in, the, in the middle of these uh, mountains, there are these gorges, and the, uh, the wind can just come flying through those things. And so it's, it's pretty common that a storm will come up out of nowhere uh, on, the, on the Sea of Galilee. And sure enough, uh, it says in verse 23, a windstorm came down on the lake. So that's kind of a technically accurate description of it. It came down from those mountains through those gorges. It came down on the lake. One translation says, uh, look, a huge quake hit the lake so that the boat was swamped with waves. It was like a quake. It was that kind of jarring power. A huge quake hit the boat. And I am not um, someone who's been on the open water very much at all. I have almost no uh, experience whatsoever with storms like this. But... um, I can imagine from just my experience of being at the beach with storms that it's unusual how quickly it can get dark and um, how quickly uh, it gets cold and the wind picks up. I'm sure all of us have experienced this in some way. Just that feeling of suddenly you've gone from this beautiful, bright, sunny day to really quickly, uh, it's, it's very scary. And uh, within you know, 15 minutes, they say, on, on this particular lake, you can go from a flat sea to just five-foot waves. Really, in 15 minutes. Can go from that. Uh, it says in verse 23, they were filling with water. So these waves are so big that they are crashing over uh, the boat that they're in, and it's, it's going from side to side, and they're, they're bailing water frantically out because the boat is going down. It is getting lower and lower down in the water, and it's not a big boat. Uh, we've actually found this boat. That's pretty amazing that the archaeologists would have found, uh, not this very boat, of course, we don't know that, but they call it the Jesus boat, and it was found in 1986 in the area of the lake that might have been where this happened. It's kind of in the northern corner of the lake. Uh, they found a boat that is about the size of uh, maybe four canoes, so it would be roughly the size uh, of, of the stage, a little smaller than that. There's, there's a bunch of people in this boat, um, probably 13 um, and so uh, that's the kind of boat that is being hit by this kind of storm. And there actually is a place in the back of the boat, um, from the boat we found in the, in the stern, uh, where there's a cushion. They, you could have put a cushion and somebody would have slept there. And so it's interesting, in, in Mark, this is in another gospel, because this story is told in three gospels. Uh, in the book of Mark, it's told a little bit differently, and it says... This little detail is included, which makes it, you know, very historically um, intriguing and, uh, and detailed, and I think therefore reliable. 
He was in the stern asleep on the cushion, Mark tells us. One of those little details that's so interesting. He was asleep on the cushion in the back of that boat. Uh, in the storm, he is just lying down sleeping. And so not only are they in this giant storm and their, their boat's being flung around, and I don't know how long, but they're taking in water. So it's got to be a decent amount of time. And the whole time, he is in the back of the boat and he's asleep. And that's got to be really disconcerting to them. Uh, perhaps even worse than the storm was the fact that it felt like uh, God had abandoned them. That they were completely alone in the storm. And I think that's probably what makes the storms we go through uh, worst of all. Is when we feel like uh, God is not there with us. I, uh, I, I wake up sometimes, uh, not that often, but it did happen this week. It's always uh, you know, around 2 a.m., 3 a.m. For some reason, that's like the witching hour. And I'll have this panic in my chest about something that's going wrong. Um, and it's usually the feeling of, of something that's happening in my life that I can't control. Very anxious about it. And it always is the sense that I'm completely alone in it. That's really important to the experience I have of this deep anxiety. Is that I am completely alone. And I've got to figure that this whole thing by myself. I have no one else. No resources. And it, it actually reminds me most of all of the trash compactor scene in Star Wars. Where if you saw the very first original one... And uh, those walls are closing in. And they try to put that rod between them to, to stop it from closing. Um, it's that kind of feeling. Everything's getting tighter and tighter and smaller and smaller inside of me. That's the feeling. And the, the presence of God and the power of God are, are very, very dim and hazy realities to me in those moments. They seem very, very distant. And that is why uh, Jesus asks this question of them, which is a really important question to ask yourself. Right now, where is your faith? I, I love the way that is phrased. It doesn't say, uh, why don't you have faith? Uh, he assumes they have faith. But what he's saying is, why are you not exercising the faith? Where is it right now? Um, where, have you misplaced your faith? Um, you know, I, I know you, have it, you guys have that faith somewhere around here, but uh, apparently you don't know how to find it right now. It'd be kind of like if a child uh, has asthma and they have a nebulizer and they're starting to have an attack, you know, they can't breathe. Uh, and you're like, where is your nebulizer? I gave you the nebulizer. Where is it right now? You know, why did you misplace that? Why is that, that, that not on you? Why are you not utilizing that right now? That's the way that the, the question is phrased. Uh, where is your faith? In that storm, like, where did you put it? Because I know you have it, but you're not bringing it into the situation. A lot of times we, we have faith, but when this specific storm arises, it's like we, we don't know that we should put the faith in that place. The faith, we've never applied the faith to that thing. I remember as a young Christian and I was dating um, my wife Margie at the time. We were just dating and uh, it was fragile for me. Uh, it was my first girlfriend. I, I didn't know uh, the ways of dating. I, I felt very insecure about the relationship. And I had just become a Christian. And so that was new to me as well. And we would have these big fights. And uh, they were always late at night. That's just a warning if you are uh, you know, in, in a new relationship. For some reason, that is often when the fights occur. Uh, late at night. So you can expect that to happen. And... Uh, I would often say something a little bit peevish or exaggerated, something with a little bit of hyperbole, and it would get uh, on her nerves. And, and her response was to get really silent, like really, really silent. 
Um, not the quiet kind of, the deep silence, the deep, deep silence. And I could tell there was something, you know, really, really wrong on the other end of the line. It was often on the telephone. And I would literally not let her get off that phone for hours. I would just badger her. And I was doing it the other day, and then I, I remembered. Um, and I would, I would keep saying, uh, why are you so mad at me? Like, I don't understand what I did wrong. I'm not mad at you at all. I'm not mad at all at you. Why are you so mad at me? And it was just this game that we would play about who was mad at who. And, uh, and Jesus, at that point, was like, where's your faith? Because I gave you this faith, you know, a few months ago. You know I'm with you. I told you that I would never leave you. When you believed in me, my promise to you was that I'm not going to forsake you. I am with you always. To the end of the age, we know these things. I will be your God and you will be my child. You know, we know these verses. But in that fight, when someone's mad at me that I love, it's just like, where's your faith? Because it seems to be gone right now. And maybe for you, it's uh, your family's in some kind of chaos right now. That's often a place where we, mis- that's a place where we misplace our faith. Uh, oftentimes when relationships in our family are really bad, Parents, brothers, sisters, children. Uh, Maybe it's a job which, if if your job is impossibly stressful and you don't know how to make any move that will work at all and you're completely confused and that's all you can think about, that's often a time where you can say, where where in my memory bank have I placed that faith that I have? And can I bring that into that situation? Or maybe it's money. When money is tight and you don't know how you're going to pay all your bills, uh, your mind just gets racing so much that it's often really hard to even consider the possibility of God in a thing like that. Or it can just be the, the biggest fear of all, which is the fear of death. And the fear of death uh, can just terrorize us in such a way that you can't find your faith anywhere. And of course, that's uh, one reason why the coronavirus is creating this absolute panic. Uh, it's like clickbait for an absolutely terrified public already. But if I go to my phone and I swipe to the right and it gives me Apple News, basically three of those four articles generally are about how horrible things are right now and how everybody's going to die. Something like that. The whole, every, everyone in the world is going to die. And it's always very inflammatory. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but there was a missionary in China in Wuhan, actually, where it started. And she said that um, she thought that the fear of people was greater, a greater virus than the virus itself. And she said that uh, what she and her fellow missionaries could do more than anything is that when they went out and the curfews were lifted for a time and they went out in public, it was just that they were not panicking. That they were, they were actually very different about the way they approached this because they knew that God was with them. They knew that uh, the Lord of resurrection, the one who had victory over death, was, was not asleep. Was, was with them, um, that he did care, that he was in the boat. And that moves to our second point, which is that in the storms, uh, God is with us, and that God suffers with us, uh, that God never gets out of the boat. Uh, he's always there. It says in verse 24, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And this is not just a placid sea or a blue sky or uh, a steady boat, but it's a, it's a deep relaxation that's physical. You can physically feel it, where you can breathe more deeply. Uh, you're not panicked. 
down in the depths of the bone. That, that's the calm that happens here. Uh, when they realize where their faith is and they find their faith. It says in the book of Mark, going back to Mark, uh, he awoke and he said to the sea, he's speaking to the sea right now. Uh, He said to the sea, peace, be still. He awoke and he said to the sea, peace, be still. I, uh, for whatever reason, have loved that verse for many years and I think about it a lot. It's one of those Verses I've memorized. Uh, he awoke and he said to the sea, peace be still. And for some reason when I hear that, I think of him as absolutely not in a hurry at all. And completely uh, relaxed. Almost like he, you know, first he stretched. He, you know, he saw the storm. He kind of yawned and he stretched. And he stood up slowly. And he rubbed his eyes. And maybe he adjusted his glasses if he had glasses. And he, he was like, okay, you know. Calm down. Hush, 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 hush. Kind of like when your dog is going crazy on the mailman. He was like, hush. You know, he rebuked the wind. It's just like it was nothing to him. It's this, uh, it's this little tiny gnat to him. These waves that were so terrifying to them. A great uh, early church theologian, uh, John Chrysostom, said that Jesus put forth no rod. Wait, Moses had a rod. Uh, He did not need any prayer, but was simply like a master commanding his creature by his word alone. And another one of the early church fathers, Jerome, greatest translator in early church, he said, creation here recognizes her creator. That the wind and the waves are nature recognizing her maker at that moment. Hush, you know, be, be still, peace. That uh, the gnat, the gnat is speaking the fragility of his humanity. So he's absolutely a human. He's taking a gnat in a boat. He gets tired. But on the other hand, if the gnat shows his full humanity, the word to the storm shows his complete control of nature. His absolute divinity. And not only has he not abandoned them, he is with them in, in more power than they could have ever imagined that he had. And so this sleepy man... And this boat, in the back of the boat, is actually like Poseidon. He's the lord of the sea. He commands the sea. In Psalm 107, it says that the Israelites cried to Yahweh in their troubles, and he delivered them from their distress. And listen to this. He made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. It's almost the same two words that is used in the Gospel of Luke. He made made the storm be still, and then the waves of the sea were hushed. That's a reference to God putting the Red Sea at at ease. He made it it divide and just stay there. So he just completely calmed uh, the Red Sea, and then the Israelites went right through it. It showed that Yahweh had total dominion over the seas. Uh, He made the storm to be still, says Psalm 107, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And now here's Jesus saying, the same one who dried up the Red Sea, you know, hush, hush, be still. He's acting part of Yahweh. And that's why he says in, in Matthew, again, this is in three Gospels, in, in the book of Matthew eight twenty six, Jesus says to the disciples, Why were you so afraid, O you of little faith? He calls them, O you of little faith. Why were you so afraid? I mean, I know you're about to die in a storm, but you had no faith in me at all. Or your faith in me was like, was minuscule. And the reason he calls them little faith 
is because they had no idea of the immensity of the one who was in the boat with them. They had not measured the full stature of this man who was in the boat with them. He's saying to them, you know, you saw me heal people. Uh, You saw me forgive people. You saw me cast out demons. You even saw me uh, bring someone back to life from the dead. But you have not seen this part of me, which is that I am in control of nature itself. And it says in verse 25 that when this happened, this is after the storm has been stilled. After the storm is stilled, it says they were afraid. I love that. They, They were afraid after the storm and they marveled and they said, who is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. They're just starting to move out of little faith and into actually getting who this person is. And uh, not only does it say they were afraid after the storm, but actually in the gospel of Mark, it says they were more afraid. So it says that they were filled with fear in the storm. But then after the storm, they were filled with great fear. Uh, mega phobeomai. So just uh, phobia at first, fear, but then mega phobia after. It's interesting, isn't it, that after he stills the storm, they're more afraid of him than the storm. There's, a, uh, there's a, this cave below Niagara Falls, which is an amazing place to go if you've never been there. It's not that far away as compared to other national parks. So there's a cave below Niagara Falls called the Cave of the Winds, W-I-N-D-S. And uh, at the very end of that cave, you come out on these, uh, on these steps, and just the falls are right there. It's incredible. You're, you're almost in the midst of the spray. And you have to wear a raincoat because uh, the massive surge of the foam and the spray is just, you know, just drenching you. The, the energy is blowing back your, um, your, your raincoat. And so uh, I entered that cave as a teenager when we visited there. And I was filled with your typical high school, middle school fears about... You know, losing friends or being bullied or being cut from the basketball team. I had all these fears. I went into that cave. Come out of that cave and then that, that huge Niagara Falls. And I didn't even think about those things when I left. They were, they were far from my mind. They came back. But when I saw that, when I saw that when I was marveling, filled with great fear at Niagara Falls, uh, those middle school fears were temporarily driven away. I think the only way to drive out our fears of the storm are with a greater fear of the one who was with us in the storm. It's like in a hospital, there's certain rooms, positive pressure rooms, where in that room, if you have a compromised immune system, you go in that room where you can't have anything coming in, no germs, nothing, no viruses coming in. So the, the air is always pushing things out of the positive pressure. The pressure is so high in the room, there's always a wind going out of the room, and the fear of God is like that. It just drives out. The awe and the majesty of God drives fear away. When you have that experience of worshiping God in his mighty holiness, it drives your fears away, your smaller fears away. So if you're taking a huge test or you're buying a house or you're getting a job or having a child, all these storms, um, they, they bow down before the immensity of Jesus, who is the Lord of the storm. But even if you have no awareness, and this is really good news, even if you have little, little, tiny, teeny, tiny faith, like almost no faith at all, you have absolutely no fear of Christ and no awe of Christ, no marveling at all, even if you have almost nothing 
He still calms the storm. It didn't change the fact. The disciples came to him with almost no faith. And Jesus didn't say, go have a prayer meeting back there or do a Bible study and increase your faith and then come back and then I'll still the storm. He just, he does it anyway. It doesn't matter how much faith you bring to him. It's him in the boat with you. It's not your apprehension of him. It's not the power of your belief in him. It is the one that you believe in that has the power. And he's the one that stills the storm. There's a phrase that comes from ancient Greece, actually from sailors in ancient Greece, and we use it all the time. The phrase is, we're all in the same boat here. You know, I've used that with, uh, with the coronavirus. We're all in the same boat. And it basically means that all the sailors are going down together in the same, in the same storm. We're all in the same boat here. And, uh, and God decided, when he became a human, that uh, we're all in the same boat. He's like, I am, I am not going to stop being a human. A lot of people think that God became a human and then after he rose from the grave. I don't know really what they think he did after that, but they don't think he was a human anymore. I think it's like he kind of shed his snakeskin and now he's not a human anymore. But no, Jesus didn't pretend to be a human. He didn't have an escape hatch or he didn't have an eject button where he could just stop being a human and go back to being the son of God. He didn't come for a quick visit. Like when you go and slum it with some friends for a weekend over spring break in this nasty apartment or something. He, he came here forever, and he's still with us as a human. He didn't never stop being a human. He came into the sinking ship for good, and he'll never stop being a human being with us in our storms. Even though he's ascended to the right hand of God, that doesn't change the fact that he's with us in the presence of his Holy Spirit. We visited uh, an orphanage in Uganda in 2015, and we were there for a week, maybe more than a week, just a few more days than a week. And I gave up Panera, I gave up Chopped, I gave up Sweet Tea, I gave up all this stuff. No air conditioning, no, no privacy, no comfortable bed, uh, no hot shower. But we were not in the same boat at all with the orphans, not at all. And even the missionaries that were there from, from America, uh, they were not in the same boat. I admire them, but they had, they had running water, they had wood floors, they had electricity, they had refrigerators, they had a separate school for their kids. And if they got really, really sick, if their kids got really sick, they would just airlift them to a Western hospital. And I'm, I'm not saying anything negative about missionaries here. That makes a lot of sense. But what I'm saying is that Jesus is not going to ever be airlifted out of the human race. He, he's never going to take that option. That he is absolutely with us. And the supper here is saying that I am not going to get out of that boat. And I'm not going to be beamed up. I'm not going to disapparate. I'm not just going to suddenly leave you. I am going to stay with you forever. And what that means is, I realize what that means. God decided that the choice that God makes to do that, um, that kind of God that he is, means that he's going to be beaten. He knows this. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be slapped and mocked and whipped and crucified. And all that uh, completely abandoned by God so that we would never have to be completely abandoned. So that that we would always know uh, that he's with us always. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that Jesus was going to experience total abandonment,